According to a November 2012 article in The Atlantic, Sarah Posner reports that there are 175,000 to 250,000 Messianic Jews in the United States and some 350,000 Messianic Jews worldwide, 10,000 to 20,000 of which live in Israel. Now, there are 14.8 million Jews worldwide and 6.7 million in Israel, according to a September 2019 article in the Jerusalem Post. Now, all of this means that at present, about 2% of the world's Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And only 0.1 to 0.3% of Israel's Jews believe in Jesus. The lostness of Israel is staggering, and their hostility towards the gospel is startling. You may have heard of the evangelical mission group Jews for Jesus, whose stated mission is to, quote, relentlessly pursue God's plan for the salvation of the Jewish people through faith in Jesus the Messiah. Jews for Jesus exists in some 20 cities around the world, including in Tel Aviv in Israel and opening soon in Jerusalem. And they seek to share the gospel of Jesus in the major Jewish communities located in these major world cities. But if you want to get a sense, just a taste of the the Jewish hostility towards groups like Jews for Jesus, then you should go to the website jewsforjudaism.org, whose specific aim is to counteract Jewish evangelism and to preserve, quote, Jewish heritage, meaning that that group exists in order to keep ethnic Jews from converting to faith in Jesus. As a general rule, both the Orthodox and the Reform branches of Judaism and and even secular Jews remain hostile towards Christ and towards his church. They view any attempt to evangelize Jews to be anti-Semitic because it implies that non-Messianic Jews are under judgment and are alienated from God. One suspects that the only reason the Israeli government tolerates Christian missions within its borders, despite the ever-present and vocal opposition from both the Orthodox and the Reformed Jewish groups in Israel, is because they know that Christian Zionism, uh, that belief that Christ's return is intimately tied to the return of ethnic Jews to the Holy Land, they know that Christian Zionism has driven over the last 70, 80, 90 years both the United States' foreign policy towards Israel, including its often unqualified support and billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in foreign aid, but it also continues to drive a huge tourism industry that depends upon Christian interest in the Holy Land. Year by year, Christians account for some 57% of all tourism to the Holy Land. In other words... The hardening that God has placed upon Israel, 
Okay, the hardening of which Paul speaks in Romans 11, verses 7 to 10, and Romans eleven twenty five persists to this very day. It has not yet been removed. The same circumstances obtain in the 21st century as Paul described in his day in the 1st century. Elsewhere, Paul described this hardening of the Jewish people as a a veil that remains over their hearts, preventing them from understanding their own scriptures and from seeing in their own scriptures the glory of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He's talking about the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the law. But their mind, says Paul, was hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil Is removed. Everything Paul says was true of the Jews in his day remains true in ours. If you would like to see the hardening of the Jewish mind and heart at work, the hardening that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 3 and in Romans chapter 11, I would refer you once again to JewsForJudaism.org and just sort of peruse your way through their articles that they supply for, um, for the people who visit their website and are looking for an answer to, Jewish mis- or to Christian missionaries. For instance, you should see the way that they handle Isaiah 53 so as to identify the suffering servant with the nation of Israel rather than with a single messianic figure, namely Jesus. The way that they deny that that chapter teaches a vicarious atonement for sinners. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And somehow they derive from that chapter that God is speaking of the nation of Israel and not the Messiah Jesus. Or you should look at the way that they interpret Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant. Which God specifically says in Jeremiah 31 is not like the old covenant that I made with the house of Israel in those days. That covenant which they broke though I was a father to them. They describe Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant as merely a reinvigoration or revitalization, those words, their words, of the Mosaic covenant. Or you should read the way that they dismiss the empty tomb. Quote, the disappearance of the body does not mean that there was a resurrection. The empty tomb explains nothing. What arose, from, uh, what arose was not the dead Jesus, but the sectarian propaganda devised by the disciples, end quote. Or, you should see the way that they charge the New Testament with institutionalizing anti-Semitism. And the list just goes on and on and on. For 2,000 years now, the Jewish people have remained one of the most unbelieving and resistant people groups on earth. 
And my aim in this introduction this morning is to show that nothing has transpired over the last two millennia to change the situation described by Paul, the Jew, in Romans chapter 11. This partial hardening that he refers to in Romans 11.25 remains, for the time being, a present hardening. And the question is, why? What is God's purpose in this long age of Jewish rejection? Well, that's the question that Paul answers in verses 11 to 15, in which we find that not only is God's hardening of Israel both partial and present, it's also purposeful. God is doing something in this temporary and partial rejection of the Jewish people. What is it? Why did, why did God elect, according to his sovereign grace, only a, a remnant from Israel in each generation? That's what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. Why did he, did he elect only a remnant and harden the rest? Verse 7. What's God's purpose? Well, that's what Paul is going to answer in the next five verses. And let me warn you that Paul's reasons are probably not going to make much sense to you. Unless you change something fundamental in the way that you think about the world and history and our place in it. Paul's reasons that he's going to give are going to seem to you unfathomable. How do I know? Because at the end of the chapter, after explaining God's sovereign, global, eternal purpose behind Israel's partial and temporary hardening, followed by their final salvation. Paul just throws his hands up in the air and, and closes Romans 9 to 11 with this soaring doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It should not surprise us then if Paul's explanation of God's ways in this passage don't make sense to us. It should not surprise us if what Paul describes in this passage are unsearchable. Or inscrutable. That is, they can't be searched out. They can't be scrutinized by men. But Paul does tell us that this roundabout way of showing mercy that he's going to describe in verses 11 to 15, right? Hardening the Jews in order to save the Gentiles. Saving the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. Making Israel jealous in order that they might be saved. Saving Israel in order that Christ might return and raise the dead. That roundabout way of showing mercy is designed to demonstrate the fact of Romans 11.36. That from God and to God and through God are all things. And that to him belongs the glory forever. In other words, the historical plan of redemption is aimed at demonstrating that all things, both mercy and judgment, come from the sovereign will and working of God. Was there a more efficient way of saving the nations? Sure. But efficiency is not God's ultimate aim. Glory is. 
And this plan of redemption described in verses 11 to 15 is designed to maximize God's glory forever. So I see in this text four movements during this present age of redemptive history. Four things that God is doing to save his people during this present age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Okay? These four redemptive historical movements can be stated in the form of four cause and effect propositions. Number one, Israel was hardened in order that the Gentiles might be saved. Number two, the Gentiles are saved in order that Israel might be provoked to jealousy. Number three, Israel is provoked to jealousy in order that they might be saved. And number four, Israel is saved in order that Christ might return to raise the dead and usher in the end of the age. That's the way Paul sees redemptive history. So let's take these movements one at a time. Paul begins by stating that God's first purpose in hardening all but the elect remnant of Israel is in order that his salvation would reach the Gentile nations. He explicitly states this in verse 11. And then he alludes to it three more times in verse 12, 15, and 19. Look with me down at the text. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, there's the cause, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There's the effect. Look at verse 12. Now, if their trespass, there's the cause, means riches for the world, and if their failure, there's the cause, means riches for the Gentiles, effect. Or verse 15, for if their rejection, there's the cause, means the reconciliation of the world, there's the effect. Or verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off that I, Gentile, might be grafted in. They cause effect, and Paul says, that's true. That's right. It's not all he says. We'll get to that next week. But he affirms that that's true. Clearly in Paul's mind, there is a cause and effect relationship between Israel's rejection and Gentile salvation. The one brought about the other. Without Israel's hardening and rejection, there would be no Gentile repentance and reconciliation. Now, before we look at this first cause and effect movement, I want to clarify of whom Paul speaks. Okay? We need to be very careful about our pronouns in this section. Who is the they who stumbled? Verse 11. The they who trespassed? Verses 11 and 12. The they who have been rejected? Verse 15. Or who have been broken off? Verse 19. We need to keep our reference straight lest we fall into error because of carelessness and think that Paul's saying something that he's not saying. Okay, Who is they? Well, the they, the antecedent, the referent of they is found in verse 7. So let your eyes just kind of ratchet up the text to verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. Now watch this carefully. Look at verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? 
End of, verse, or end of Romans 9, it was seeking the righteousness of God. They sought it by works. They didn't obtain it. The elect, he says, obtained it. Who are they? That's the remnant chosen by grace up in verses 5 and 6. Or if we reach back to Romans 9, that's the true Israel of Romans 9, 6. It's the spiritual children of Abraham, uh, verse chapter 9, 7. It's the children of promise, 9, 8. It's the elect remnant chosen by grace. They obtained the righteousness of God through faith, but the rest were hardened. Note that Paul is equating Israel not with the elect. He's equating Israel with the rest who were hardened. And everything that he says from that on, from then on, is related to that group. Corporate, ethnic, Israel as a whole who are hardened and hostile against God. The characterizing descriptor of Israel in this present age is that they are hard. That they are stumbling that they are rejected, that they are broken off. Now, not all of them, there's an elect remnant, but as a whole, that's who Paul's dealing with. That's who God gave a spirit of stupor, blind eyes and deaf ears, verse eight. That's whose table God made a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. That's whose eyes God darkened and whose backs he bent, verses nine and 10. And Paul's point in Romans uh, chapter 11 is that even though Israel as a whole is almost entirely accursed and cut off from Christ, hardened and unbelieving and stumbling and rejected, they are not rejected completely, verses 1 to 10, nor finally, verses 11 to 32. That's Paul's argument in Romans 11. So when Paul asks, did they stumble in order that they might fall? He's asking whether God has so hardened the Jewish people, the the ethnic nation of Israel, who are lost and accursed and cut off from Christ, has God so hardened them that they are beyond recovery? In other words, is God finished with Israel? Is God finished with the Jewish people? And Paul's answer, verse 11, is by no means. And his reasoning is that Israel stumbled, he's talking about their rejection of Christ, in order that salvation would come to the Gentiles, in order that Israel would be jealous, with the implication being that in being provoked to jealousy, Israel would then embrace Christ and so would be saved. We'll deal with those last few links in the cause and effect chain in just a moment. For now, let's focus on the first. Israel stumbled in their rejection of Christ as the Messiah by whom they could have received the righteousness of God through faith. They stumbled, Romans 9.32, over the stumbling stone who is Christ. That was their trespass that Paul's talking about. It's unbelief. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, John 1.11. In other words, Israel said, in Paul's day and in our day, we do not believe you are sent from God. We do not believe you are the Son of God. We do not receive you as the Messiah. 
The apostles whom Jesus sent first to the Jews, first to Israel, pleaded with them to reconsider, pleaded with them to repent and believe. They said, no, 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 Jesus of Nazareth is is the hope of the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Through faith in him alone can you be justified and reconciled to God and eternally saved. And Israel said to the apostles, we do not believe you. We do not receive your gospel. We do not receive your Christ. And so what happened? The apostles and the church after them turned to the Gentiles instead. And in city after city and nation after nation, the Gentiles were converted. And so it is down to the present day. Tribes, tongues, Peoples, nations the world over have been converted to Christ, are included in the Abrahamic covenant, have become heirs of the promises made to Abraham. And all the while, one ethnic group, one nation remains conspicuously missing, the Jewish people. Now, I can give you an historical rationale for why the Jewish rejection led to the Gentile salvation. I mean, you could just look at the book of Acts. It's simply what happened. It was predicted by Jesus even in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 21, in the conclusion to the parable of the tenants, Jesus told the Jews, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation, a people producing the fruit thereof. Okay, It's going to happen. The kingdom's going to be ripped from your hands and it's going to be given to the Gentiles. And then that's just exactly what played out historically. On no less than five different occasions in the book of Acts, Luke links the Jewish rejection of the gospel and their opposition towards the church to the Gentiles being saved. Acts chapter 8, immediately after the death of Stephen, a great persecution broke out against the church, the hands of the Jews with the result that the church scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, taking the word of God with them. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were in Pisidian Antioch preaching in the synagogue, telling them that Christ is the fulfillment. He's the hope of the prophets when a huge resistance breaks out among the Jews. Acts 13, 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are going to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The Jewish rejection brings about the Gentile salvation. The same scene plays out in Acts 18.6 in Corinth, in Acts 19.8 in Ephesus, and then finally in Rome in Acts 28.28. In that last instance, Paul has finally made it to Rome. He's in the synagogue in Rome. He's speaking to the Jews. They're not having it. And so Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 before saying, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So so Paul's statements in, in Romans 11 are certainly true historically. There is an historical cause and effect between Israel's rejection and the Gentile salvation. 
But why is it necessarily true theologically? Why did God employ, why is he employing this rather circuitous, roundabout, circular way of bringing first the Gentiles and then the Jews, as we'll see, finally into the kingdom? What was God's purpose? And the answer is, I don't actually know. Other than it was designed, Romans eleven thirty six to maximize his own glory. It was designed that at the end of days, the, the, the redeemed multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, including Israel, would look at this and say, from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him belongs the glory forever and ever. It's not how I would have done it. Because I prize efficiency above all else. God prizes his glory above all else. The purpose of God in ordering redemptive history in this fashion is that you and I and the rest of the redeemed would marvel at the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God and would declare that to him belongs the glory forever and ever. The second movement in this redemptive historical chain is explicitly found in the second half of verse 11. Then it's alluded to again in verse 14. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Now, I will be the first one to admit to you that this is strange. I certainly don't think like this. In fact, I find it odd that Paul thinks like this, considering what Paul has said in the first eight chapters of Romans. But again, I remind you, as I will over the next several weeks, that everything Paul says in Romans 9 to 11 falls under the category of his unsearchable, inscrutable judgments. Romans eleven thirty three. In verse 11, Paul states that God's purpose in using Israel's trespass, indeed ordaining Israel's trespass, in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles, is in order to make Israel jealous. Now, why do I say that's strange? It seems strange to me that God would harden them in order to save the Gentiles, in order to soften them. Like, why not just soften them to begin with? His ways are not my ways. This is stunning and startling and strange. God purposed Israel's rejection. Remember the active verbs there in verse 7. He hardened them in order to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles in order to provoke Israel to jealousy. Well, jealous of what? I think he's talking about the blessings of the new covenant. I think... God's design is that the Jews would see the blessings enjoyed by the church, the blessings of the new covenant, and that would provoke them to jealousy. John Stott writes this. He says, when Israel sees the blessings of salvation being enjoyed by believing Gentiles, and then he names some of those blessings, their reconciliation to God and to each other, their forgiveness, their love, their joy and peace through the Holy Spirit, they will covet these blessings for themselves, and it is implied will repent and believe in Jesus in order to secure them. So I think it would be a good idea to stop and pause here and to ask the question, 
and I think must be asked, whether there is anything about our church that would provoke Jews to jealousy. If a Jew were to go to the the synagogue up in Springfield on the Sabbath, on Friday night, and then for whatever reason, maybe you invite them, they, they find their way here on a Sunday morning, would they be jealous? If they, if they were to take a good look at your life, say your Jewish neighbor, coworker, friend, if they were to take a good, long look at your life, saw day in, day out the way that you live, would they be jealous? Food for thought. Then in verse 13, Paul states that it is his own purpose in magnifying, literally glorifying his ministry among the Gentiles to make his fellow Jews jealous. That's God's purpose. And so Paul says, that's my purpose. And I take this to mean that Paul passionately values and he relentlessly pursues and he even shamelessly promotes his Gentile ministry. He wants his Gentile mission to be successful and he wants his Jewish brethren to see its success in order that they may be provoked to jealousy at the way in which God's grace is being so evidently poured out upon the nations. He wants the Jews to look at the church and say among themselves, remember when God's blessing was upon us? Remember when we were the chosen covenant people of God? It's what he wants, and that's what God wants. Third, the jealousy of the Jews, however, is not the ultimate aim. He doesn't do all this in order just to make them feel jealous. He's after their salvation. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And verse 14, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus... To save some. Okay? God does not want Israel to simply be jealous for what they once had. He wants the Jews, out of their jealousy, to reconsider Jesus. To reconsider whether he might be the Messiah, the Son of God, after all. He wants them to ponder why all of the other Jewish sects which followed after false messiahs died out and are nothing more than just a blip on the radar of history while the movement started by Jesus of Nazareth has spread to every nation on earth. He wants them to consider why this particular mustard seed has grown into the largest plant in the garden. Matthew thirteen thirty one. Do you remember the advice that Gamaliel gave to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, I think it is? Yeah, Acts chapter 5. Sanhedrin is gathered, the ruling council of the Jews. They're gathered in, in Jerusalem uh, to discuss the, the Christian problem, right? The apostles, especially Peter and John, are preaching every day in the temple. They're stirring up the people. Uh, there's, this, there's all of this... Uh, energy buzzing around about the Christ that they thought they had buried and put in the grave. And and Gamaliel, one of the members of the council, rises up and he says this, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, but he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And his advice is still wise and Israel should still heed it. They should ask themselves, why has this Christian movement not failed? Why has God not overthrown them? They should ask why some 2,000 years later, Jesus of Nazareth is worshipped as the Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners and raised on the third day by nearly every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on earth. Why has God not put a stop to this Nazarene error like he did all of the other false Jewish sects following a false Messiah in Israel's history? Why does the presence and the power of God seem to abide upon the Gentile church in the same way it used to abide in the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple? Whence comes the power and the glory, the miracles and the gifts, the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? Why is God among them and not among us? That's the thought process that God wants them to go through. And these are the questions that Israel should be asking as they see Gentiles continuously flooding into the kingdom of God. And I would hasten to add, they are questions that Israel will one day ask. When the veil is lifted, when the hardness is removed, and Israel can see clearly. Then the scripture will be fulfilled, which was spoken long ago through the mouth of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10, God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have, what? Pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I'm going to pour out my grace upon them so that it might open their eyes so they would look upon the crucified one as the firstborn son of Israel. Interestingly enough, the apostle John quotes that passage in both his gospel during the crucifixion scene And in Revelation, with reference to Christ's return, which is the one that interests me. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But in the case of Israel, that's not the wailing of terror upon the return of Christ. It's not the wailing, for instance, of Revelation chapter 6 of those who hide in the caves of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who can stand? Israel's not going to be saying that, not at the end. Rather, as the context of Zechariah makes clear, the weeping of Israel is the weeping of repentance. Because Israel shall on that day look upon him whom they have pierced, the Christ whom they have rejected and scorned, and they will repent in mass. How do I know? Because just after describing the bitter weeping of the house of Israel, Zechariah concludes this. 
on that day there shall be opened for the house uh, op- there, I'm sorry on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness and you see what's happening here God says on that day which is code language it's not code there are no codes in the bible but it's language that speaks of the end of the age on that day i will pour out my grace upon him then they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will weep for him as for an only son and it is in the grace that brings about the looking and it's in the looking that leads to the beholding and it's in the beholding that a fountain is opened up for cleansing of sin and iniquity the looking leads to the cleansing. Zechariah then proceeds to describe the future salvation of this remnant. He says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, one-third shall be left alive. I will put this one-third into the fire, refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Zechariah is describing the salvation of Israel on the last day when they finally see Christ as he is. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? That's because Paul knew his prophets. He lived and he breathed Zechariah as he did the rest of the scriptures, and he knew from the prophets that God had not finally rejected his people, but that one day a fountain of atoning grace would be opened up in Israel that would cleanse them of all their iniquity. And he knew that this cleansing fountain would be opened when they finally looked upon and saw and wept over the pierced one, the firstborn son of Israel who was crucified for their sins and raised for their justification. That's how, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. There's one more movement. Israel is hardened in order that the Gentiles might be saved. The Gentiles are saved in order that Israel might be provoked to jealousy. Israel is made jealous in order that they might be saved. Well, what happens then? Then the end comes. Rather, through their trespass, verse 11... Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Note this. There's a, there's a parallel that goes on here. Look at verse 11. Trespass in verse 11 is, is parallel to trespass and failure in verse 12. Therefore, salvation in verse 11, the trespass brings about the salvation. That salvation is also parallel to the riches for the world and the Gentiles in verse 12. In other words, the riches that will come upon the Gentiles in the world is the salvation of God. Okay, we've already covered that. The question now is this. If the Gentiles have already received the riches of God's salvation through Israel's trespass, what more could they receive than salvation? After all, that's, that's Paul's argument, right? If Israel's trespass means that the Gentiles are saved, how much more will Israel's full inclusion, in other words, Israel's salvation, mean for the Gentiles? And I'm left asking, what could be much more than being saved? What's much more than salvation? And Paul gives the answer in verse 15. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Evidently, then, the conversion of the Jews to faith in Christ will inaugurate the end of the age, the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. I think this is fascinating. You remember Jesus' statement in Matthew 24, 14 about how the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and then the end will come? Evidently, Israel is the last nation to be reached, the last people group to be converted. They're the icing upon the cake of redemption. Or maybe better, they're both the foundation and the steeple on the church which Christ is building. They're the grand finale of God's redemptive plan. At the end of the age, Christ will return, the dead will be raised, the nations will be judged, the earth will be consumed in flaming fire, says 2 Peter 3, 7, and the new heaven and the new earth will be called into being where the redeemed of Christ from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, including Israel, will gather around the throne, clothed in white, palm branches in their hand, singing together with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And the event which will trigger all of that is the conversion of Israel. So you return to Paul's question in verse 1. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Indeed, he has made the entire end of the age dependent upon their salvation. Next week, we're going to look at verses 16 to 24, in which Paul specifically addresses the Gentile church. Who's that? That's us. He's going to talk to us, specifically, about how we ought to respond to this strange and startling plan of redemption. But I want to close this morning by mentioning just two implications, kind of reach ahead into next week's sermon, and I just want to, I don't want to leave you here with no applications today. So I have two. Number one, First Baptist Nixa ought to love the sovereign grace displayed in this passage. I'm going to tell you why. We ought to love the fact that this doesn't make sense to us, that it is unsearchable and inscrutable. Why? Because if God did what made sense, none of us would be saved. If you're the judge of all the earth and the moral rectitude of the universe lies in your hands, you don't save people who hate you, who reject you, who rebel against you, who love unrighteousness and hate holiness. You don't save them. You condemn them. That's what makes sense. But God has designed history in such a way that mercy triumphs over judgment because grace triumphs over sin. That's what verse 32 means when he says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It's a strange and wonderful sovereignty that is displayed in Romans 11. And I think that we ought to treasure it. Why? There are several reasons. I want to give you just one. Romans 11 demonstrates that human deservedness got nothing to do with it. 
It has nothing whatsoever to do with the dispensing of God's mercy. God dispenses his mercy upon sinners according to one factor and one factor only, namely grace. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That means that neither your sin, your past, nor the sin and past or present of any unbeliever you know presents any barrier whatsoever to God's mercy being poured about upon you when and how he chooses. Your sin present, presents no hindrance to the, to the reach of God's grace. None whatsoever. Why? Because everything about Romans 11 says that it depends upon God and not upon your sin. No one, not even you, is beyond the reach of a grace that is truly sovereign. A grace such as that described in the pages of Romans 11. So application number one is that Romans 11 proves to me that even I can be saved. And even you can be saved. Second application, and we'll unpack this more in the next two weeks. I think as a church... We ought to love the Jewish people and we ought to long for and labor towards their conversion. Why? Well, among other reasons, because God loves them. Look at verse 28. As regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Give you another reason. We ought to love the Jewish people and long for and labor towards their conversion. It's because in their conversion lies the completion of our salvation. You're not getting raised from the dead until they get converted. You want to see Christ coming on the clouds with power and great glory? Gathering his elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth? Pray for Israel. Pray that they might look upon him whom they have pierced and weep over him as one weeps only over an only begotten son. 